this person and what they might be. And actually, the human mind and heart are quite powerful in building these images or pictures or hopes or desires, uh, and our imagination builds up people to, to what they might be. And what I found in my own life is that I've got a pretty strong imagination, and pretty much everybody that I meet for the second, third, fourth time, the more and more I get to know them, the more and more they sort of are different than the picture that I've painted in my head. And lots of times, it's not their fault, it's just I have a tendency to put more value on someone in, in, in one sense than's really fair. I'll use the example of being a pastor. I'd never been a pastor before, so I'm pretty new to this job. But what I used to do with pastors is I used to sort of put them up on a pedestal and think, wow, they must be this ultra-spiritual, holy, uh, just uh, righteous person. And, 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 every, and they just, uh, when they read the Bible, it's like it just jumps off the page and they just understand God and they're walking with Him in the park and it's amazing. But then you meet real pastors and you realize they're just normal guys. So I'm just tell you I'm a normal guy. There's nothing special about me. I'm no different than you. And actually, once you get to meet me, I might disappoint you. Because you might have created an image in your head, and your imagination might have said, this is what I think I want a pastor to be. And it's actually good to learn to maybe crush those imaginary pictures that you create of people and things. Another good example would be Disneyland. Disneyland seems awesome up until the point that you walk into it. <laughs> yes, you hear me? Because there are thousands upon thousands of screaming kids running around. It's not like the commercials. <laughs> now, it's amazing in its own right, and if you're going to Disneyland, you're going to love it. But it's just not what you expected it to be. So almost nothing in life lives up to the hype that we are able to create around it. Almost nothing lives up to the hype. But there's one thing that actually does. And it actually surpasses anything that our imagination can place on it. And that one thing is the kingdom of God. And as we've been going through the parables, we've heard Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. And, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but lots of times He's talking about this is how you get the kingdom of God. And, and, and this is how you miss out on the kingdom of God. And Please don't miss the kingdom of God because you don't want to. But it begs the question, why do you want to experience the kingdom of God? What's so special about the kingdom of God? Why is it so valuable? I don't know if you've been thinking about that as we've gone through this series. Why is the kingdom of God so valuable? Why is it the one thing that lives up to the hype and actually surpasses the hype? Maybe you don't even have a hype about the kingdom of God. It's the one thing that's better than advertised. So we're going to look at that today. Why is the kingdom of God so valuable? And the first thing uh, that I just want to point out is that Jesus tells us how valuable it is. And so we're going to look at that in Matthew chapter 13. So if you're there with me, we're going to look at two many parables that talk about the value of the kingdom. So starting in verse 44, 
Jesus says this. He says, the kingdom of heaven, and what you have to understand is anytime you see this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, it's synonymous with the kingdom of God. And the reason why sometimes you see kingdom of heaven, sometimes you see kingdom of God is because the Jews had such, a, uh, such reverence for the name of God that they often uh, substituted God with something else, often with heaven. So the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are synonymous. So the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. I'm going to read you the next parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now what's interesting about these two parables about the value of the kingdom of God is that the first gentleman stumbles upon the kingdom. He's not actually looking for it. He stumbles upon it, but once he stumbles upon it, he recognizes its great value and he sells everything else that he has in order to buy the field in which he found that treasure. The second man is actually looking for the kingdom of heaven. He's looking for the pearl of greatest value, and he finds it. And when he finds it, he does the exact same thing. Sells everything else so that he can buy that pearl, so that he can have the kingdom of God. So I hope this is pretty clear. That if Jesus is telling the truth that the kingdom of God is so valuable that losing everything on earth but getting the kingdom is a happy trade-off. It's not an unfortunate trade-off. It's a happy trade-off. You could say the cost of everything in the world giving up everything in your world is worth it to have the kingdom of God. Why? These are these pretty clear passages that this is what Jesus believes the kingdom of God is like. So this valuable. But why is it so valuable? Well, you've got to understand what the kingdom of God. And I've had something of an epiphany this week about what the kingdom of God is and how we grasp it, how we encounter it, how we bring it into our life. And the kingdom of God, in one sense, is the reign of God. Meaning, in the kingdom of God, God is the king. But it's something more than that when you read the pages of Scripture that you realize that essentially what the kingdom of God is is the presence of God. The presence of God. That is the most essential piece of what the kingdom of God. And I'll show you in just a second why, that, uh, why we can come to that conclusion. But before I do, I want to explain to you, I think one of the things in life that almost always lives up to the hype. Um, and I want to tell you that by sort of bearing my heart a little bit. In fact, it's one of the uh, probably things that 
you wouldn't find out about me for a very long time, but since we're being honest today and we're being open, I'm going to share this thing about me that I, that I don't like about myself or about my past. Uh, you're getting really scared now. But, uh, but it's something that I was really embarrassed about in the moment. Uh, when I was a young uh, boy, um, I would go to camp. And every time I went to camp, I would get so homesick. And I was completely embarrassed by it. Uh, There's even a time where I had to call my mom and she had to come pick me up. And I didn't want to be, I didn't want to feel the way that I felt, but I did. Now, what's going on? What am I missing so much? that I'd have to call my mom to pick her up because all my friends are there. It should be a great time, but what am I missing? They say, well, it could be home cooking. Yeah, I mean, my mom's a great cook. She is a great cook. Part of the reason I'm sharing this, it's Mother's Day. Uh, So I want to record this. Send this to my mom. (laughs) She's a great cook. Yes, you are, Mother. She's a great cook. Is that what I was missing? I just had to get home for the food. No, that's not what I was missing. Was it a warm bed? No, because I had a warm bed at camp. Was it just uh, the comforts of home? No. What made me so homesick was that I was missing the presence of my mother. It wasn't any of these tangible things that someone else could fill. It was the presence of my mother, and only my mother holds that place in my life. There was just something about her presence. Allie will come home from work, and Grayson will be in the other room, and he's not smart enough to know, but when she walks in the door, it's like he can sense her presence. It's this weird thing that we humans have, this sixth sense, if you will, that we can feel the presence of people. Have you experienced this? I'm missing the presence of my mom. And I think the presence of a mother is one of those things that almost always lives up to the hype. So presence is something that we've experienced, I think all of us, as a powerful thing. Now here's the deal. The kingdom of God is the presence of of the almighty, creator, redeeming God come into our life, come into our world, and His presence is the most amazing thing anyone can experience. It's just not one of the best things. It's just not kind of like my mom's presence. It's unique, and it brings a kind of joy that once you've experienced it, you'll sell everything to get that again. It's unmatchable. And that's why Jesus again and again and again says, don't miss out on the kingdom of God, on the presence of God. Now let me explain to you why I believe the kingdom of God is the presence of God. In Matthew 3.2, 
speaking about John the Baptist, who was a cousin of Jesus, born before him, who was going around the countryside, baptizing people and telling them that the kingdom of God was coming. He was saying, repent from your sin, for the kingdom of God is coming. Here's what it says. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. He's saying, it was predicted that someone would come. And he quotes the prophet Isaiah of the Old Testament, saying, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for Him. Why are you preparing a way? Because someone, something is coming. And the thing that is coming is the Lord Himself. Not just another prophet. Not just a better way of living. But the Lord Himself is coming. Prepare a way for the Lord. So the kingdom coming into the world is the same as the Lord coming into the world. Now let me read you another passage. Luke 17, 20-21 says this, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them. So now this is Jesus talking. He says this, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in our midst. What is he saying? The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What is he saying? I think what he's saying is, I am the kingdom of God. And I am in your midst. It's not coming in lightning bolts. It's not coming in earthquakes. It's coming in me. And I am amongst you. And you're missing it. When Jesus comes and He refers to the kingdom of God again and again and again, you see Him pointing to Himself and He's saying, I am the kingdom. God is with you. I am God. I am the Son of God. The second member of the triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit. This is the understanding we get of Scripture that God is this communal God, one God in three persons. And so Jesus is God walking amongst the people 2,000 years ago, and His name was Jesus. And He was, grew up in Nazareth. And since Jesus recognizes Himself to be the King of the kingdom, the presence of the kingdom is in Him. It's in the midst of us. So if Jesus, and he said this again and again, he said the kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God has come near to you. And what is he saying? He's saying, when I come near to you, the kingdom is coming near to you. Matthew 14 says this, And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, now watch this, they sent around to all that region and brought to Him all who were sick and implored Jesus that they might only touch the fringe of His garment 
and as many as touched his garment were made well. You see, because Jesus was God walking amongst the people, the kingdom of God, the presence of God was in him that when people recognized who he was and they had faith in who he was, simply touching his garment would heal them. Whatever the kingdom of God touches, and we know this, whatever the kingdom of God touches, the presence of God overshadows it. And what you see is restoration, redemption, the bringing of wholeness, thriving. Those are characteristics of the kingdom. Those aren't the kingdom because the kingdom is the presence of God. So think about it this way. You say, how do I come near to the kingdom of God? You played the hot, hot and cold game. Somebody closes their eyes and they're searching for something. Well, I guess they don't have to close their eyes. They could just be searching for something. Maybe you've hidden it. And they take a step and you say, cold. They take a step this way. Hot, hot, hotter, cold, colder. And then you're back like this. You play this game? You can literally do this game with Jesus. If you're searching for the kingdom of God, you can know if you're getting hot or cold by if you're stepping closer to Jesus because he's the presence of God. He's Marco Polo before there was a Marco Polo. And we're searching for him because in him is the fullness of God and in the fullness of God is the kingdom of God and it changes everything that it touches. He could walk down the middle of a crowded path and all who had faith that touch Him are transformed. We saw it when He walked and now we have access to that same Jesus to the presence through the Spirit that He sent to all believers. He said, I must go so that the Father can send the Spirit and through the Spirit we too have access to the presence of God. And in that presence is power. The power of restoration and redemption. This is why Jesus says, if you find this kingdom, translation, if you find Me, it would be worthwhile for you to sell everything you own, if necessary, in order to keep hold of it. In order to keep hold of Me. We see this in the story of the rich ruler. If you know this, where Jesus says, you have to sell everything and follow me. He doesn't require all of us to do that, but for some of us, that's what it requires. The transformative, life-breathing power of God's presence means that there's no greater treasure. There's nothing. You can accumulate all the treasures of the world and you stack them up next to the presence of God No comparison. There's nothing that matches the kingdom of God, His presence. I've experienced this in my life. I've experienced the presence of God sometimes more strongly than others. And sometimes I've experienced droughts where I feel like the presence of God is far from me. And there's a difference. There is a difference. And it's a real thing And the epiphany that I had this week that really got me into this mode of thinking um, was how important 
We're talking about at Alpha how important prayer is. Uh, the speaker, Nikki Gumbel, who uh, founded Alpha, says, it's the most important thing that I do. And I had to think about that. Is prayer the most important thing that I do? Now, I've always thought, I think I have a misunderstanding of prayer. You might have this same misunderstanding, that prayer is a means to some other end. And for a lot of us, it is. We pray so that we can get something. Or we pray because we're scared. But actually, prayer in the sense that Jesus prayed... It's communication with God, but it's more about the coming into the presence of God. And so, if we are prayerful, part of the issue is we only think of prayer as a verb, but what if it was an adjective? You can, anybody can read the Bible. You can hate God with all your might, and you can read the Bible, but to read the Bible prayerfully is to say, through the words of Scripture, you're trying to come into the presence of God. And if we live a prayerful life, which is to say, if we come into the presence of God, that is the end, that's the goal, that's the kingdom. Life eternal will be life in the presence of God. Now, if this isn't clicking, just keep considering this. As you go through your week, what is the end goal? The end goal is the presence of God. And we experience that now by being prayerful people in everything we do. Not just in the prayer before dinner, but prayerfully receiving the gifts of the food that God gives us, of the friendships that He gives us, of the Word of God that He gives us. And yet, we have this opportunity to access the presence of God, and yet human beings again and again and again when presented with the invitation into His presence, we reject it. We refuse it. And we come up with some pretty lame excuses as to why we don't want to come into His presence. So turn with me now to Luke chapter 14. And this is actually uh, printed in your bulletin so you can look there too. It's going to be a few pages over from where we were. Luke chapter 14, um, starting in verse 12. And we're going to be looking at another parable known as the parable of the great banquet. And in this parable, we'll see Jesus is going to describe the kingdom of God like a great banquet. And we see this imagery all the time when Jesus talks about at the end of the age, we'll all be sitting at the table of God, with God, at the great banquet, and he uses it here. And I want you to see what happens. Verse 12. He, that's Jesus, said also to the man who had invited him. The context of this parable is that he's been invited to a dinner with a bunch of the religious elite of Israel many of whom he had been sparring with, debating with, and many of which who wanted to kill him. And Jesus said this, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. 
for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. It's a pretty radical statement that he makes to all these religious leaders who were in the habit, and we are in that same habit, of reciprocity. Um, I'll pick up the check this time, you pick up the check next time. I'll have you over for dinner this time because I know you're going to invite me to your house for dinner. He's saying, don't do that. Invite those who cannot repay you. That's truly a picture of the generosity of God that we see in the kingdom. But we won't dwell there. We'll just kind of throw that at you and let you wrestle with this that after the fact. So he goes on. and verse 15 he says, When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, that's one of the Pharisees, the Pharisee said to Jesus, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Right? So this idea of the kingdom of God being this great banquet, it was an idea. And this is Jesus' response. He says this, verse 16. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry. And he said to his servant, Go quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited, those men who made excuses, shall taste my banquet. Wow. Now what's so important about the banquet imagery? Is it the food that's served? No. That's not the most important thing about the banquet. Just like the most important thing about me Uh, Missing my mom was not the food that she cooked. The most important thing about a banquet is that you're being invited into the presence of the host. That you get to be in the room with the master of the house. That you get to be in relationship with him and share life with him. That's why this imagery of the banquet is so important. It's this idea of intimacy with God. Intimacy in his kingdom. And so to reject or to make an excuse at the invitation is to reject being in the presence of God. The Pharisee asked, Blessed is anyone who comes to the kingdom. And Jesus says, Not all will come and taste. You may have figured this out already, but the host of the banquet is God. God the Father. Those who make excuses, at least in this context, would have been the religious leaders of the day, 
sort of the first to know about the banquet, the first to know about the kingdom of God, but who often made excuses. Excuses when? When the servant came to tell them it was ready. Who's the servant? That's Jesus, who's come to tell them the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom has come near. Are you ready for it? And they say, no, we've got to go finish this other thing first. And then, of course, those, there's those who accept. Those who accept. And what's so important, uh, take a look at this with me. It says, the master says to the servant in verse 23, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in. You say, well, why, does they need, why do they need compelling? Well, in a sense, they too were making excuses. But their excuses weren't selfish. Their excuses were because nobody told them they were worthy of that kind of banquet. The people that he's talking about here are the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And when Jesus came to them, he, said, uh, he would say, the kingdom of God is near. You can have it. Come to the banquet. And they would say, no, no, not us. We've been told for centuries that that's restricted to a certain kind of person. The same would have happened for the Jews who are those first group of people who were those that were lame and blind and crippled because they were told by the religious elite that they weren't worthy of the kingdom of God, that their disease, that their disability was a sign of God's rejection of them. And Jesus comes and He says, absolutely not. The kingdom is for you. Come to the banquet. So it's, they need some compelling they need to be told that this too is a kingdom for you. But let's take a look at those who make excuses. We've got three recorded for us in the parable. The first says, I have just bought a field. I must go and see it. The second says, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. And another says, I just got married, so I can't come. I've heard each of these excuses because I've said each of them myself. I've said, listen, I've just bought this new property. I've just got this new job. I've got to go tend to it. I've got to spend some time getting it ready, prepping Investing in my career. Once that's over, maybe I'll uh, take you up on your offer. I've also bought new things and said, you know, I've spent some money on these things. These oxen. I'm going to go try them out. I'm going to take some time using them. Maybe once I've sort of gotten bored with these things, I'll take you up on that invitation. And I've also been in relationships where I've, whether it's a marriage or it's not a marriage, where I said, listen, the thing in front of me right now is this new relationship. I've got to invest in this relationship. I don't have time for anything else. If I can just get this part of my life figured out, if I can just figure out who I'm going to marry, get my marriage squared away, kind of get my career and my marriage and all my stuff in order, then at the end of that, 
God, I'm yours. I've said all of these. But the problem is, if the kingdom of God is the presence of God, there's nothing more valuable, and each of these excuses is exceedingly lame. What are your excuses right now? Maybe you're excusing yourself from the banquet. Maybe you've been before, maybe you've accepted it, but you're taking a break away from it. Because you say, I've got to get these other things in order. Maybe you've never accepted, maybe you've never been into the presence of God, and you've always thought, you know, maybe you thought, I'm not the kind of guy that gets invited to that kind of party. I'm not really a God guy. I'm not sure they'd really like me there. Or maybe you've stayed away because your stuff is more important than God's stuff. What are your excuses right now? I think this parable works on the macro level about our eternal salvation, the eternal banquet of God. But like I said, it also works on the micro level. It works on the day-to-day, the week-to-week. Are you going to choose the invitation of God to come into His presence? Or are you going to stay away from Him, work on your own stuff, and then come back to Him at some later time? Every day, every week, we have a chance come to the banquet, but so often we treat the kingdom of God like a garnish that we sprinkle on just to kind of spice up our life when we need it. It's not the main course. It's a little something we add on the side. If somebody saw your life and saw that you treated the kingdom of God that way, how valuable would they think it is? When you said, man, you've got to come to this banquet, it's legit, and they see that you only go and hang out in the presence of God once in a while. They're going to be like, it must not be that great. I'm not going to go to that party. You only go a couple times a year. Once a month. Must not be that great. People are assigning value to the kingdom of God because they know you're a kingdom person. And if you don't come to the presence of God... Very often, they're not going to think it's very valuable. But there's a warning in this parable as well. Look at the very last line, verse 24. Jesus says, For I tell you, none of those men who continue to make excuses, those men who I've invited personally, None of them will share in the banquet. And it says, none of them shall even have a taste of the banquet. That's a warning. And I don't know if it pops into your head, but when you hear this idea of the taste, it reminds me of actually another parable. And I'm just flying through the parables because we've only got two more weeks on them, so I'm just popping them out here. But I want to read you 
the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Because it reminds me of this idea of, of if, you, if you keep making excuses, you won't even get a taste of the banquet. Jesus tells this parable. He says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day of his life. And at his gate, at the gate of his mansion, laid a beggar named Lazarus. Lazarus was covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Meaning, he'd go through the garbage can. It says, even the dogs came and licked Lazarus' sores. Now the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Again, notice here this idea of intimacy. Abraham was the sort of figure of old, uh, the Old Testament, the, the picture of faith. And so, he, and, and so for the Jew to say, you're at Abraham's side, to say, you now have intimacy with Abraham, you're where Abraham is. That's the idea of heaven or the kingdom. But always this idea of intimacy. So, the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now the rich man also died. Everyone dies. The rich man also died and was buried. Now in Hades, where he was... Hades is the Jewish idea of hell. Now in Hades, where he was in constant torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away. Remember, this is a parable. (laughs) This isn't a a recounting of a, a real event. But he sees Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to them, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to do what? To dip the tip of my finger in water to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Just a taste. Once the kingdom passes us by and we recognize it and we see it for what it is, all we want is just a taste. All we'll want is just to dip our finger in the water And the warning is, at that point, it's too late. But Abraham replied to the rich man, saying, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you is a great chasm set in place, so that those who want to go from here to there cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. The rich man answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now for those of us who know how the story of Jesus ends, we know that he's alluding to himself. He's saying, these kinds of people, the people that are constantly making excuses, 
that are constantly living for themselves, that don't understand that selling everything in order to get the kingdom of God, the presence of God through Jesus, those people won't change their mind, even if somebody is raised from the dead, which is exactly what Jesus did. He hung from the cross and took the wrath of God upon himself for our sin to die in our place, and three days later he rose from the dead, and yet they still didn't believe. Jesus told them they wouldn't. If you constantly make excuses of why you don't accept the invitation to come into the presence of God, to come into the kingdom of God, there will come a day when you'll have perspective and for the first time you'll realize the value of the kingdom, the value of the presence of God, and in that moment all you'll want to do is dip your finger in it, but you won't be able That's why Jesus said it's more valuable than anything. It's why if you find it, sell everything and buy the field. That if you find it, buy, sell everything to buy this one pearl. But it's by faith that we apprehend the value of the kingdom. And once we step into it, once we come into the presence of God, once we accept the invitation, we can now, even now, experience in part the true value of it. And I'm hoping that when you do, you want to keep saying yes. And you want to keep coming back. You want to keep accepting the invitation. And over your life, the excuses will begin to dwindle and the yes will begin to overwhelm. That you too might experience the kingdom of God, the power of God, the astonishing goodness of His presence. I still, I still make excuses. All the time I make excuses. But when I do, I must repent. I must ask God to forgive me. How could I forget how much better your presence is? That one day in your court is better than a thousand elsewhere. But yet I forget. The Apostle Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament, who had maybe more than any man, we don't know, the experience of the presence of God in his life. He writes this in Philippians 3, expressing this very idea of the kingdom of God is the presence of God and there's nothing greater. He says this, Whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That I may gain Christ. That I may gain His presence. That I may gain life everlasting in His banquet. I'll give everything up. Once you see the value of the kingdom, you'll sell everything to buy the field. I hope that you see it. I hope that you see it and that you accept the invitation. Maybe you've never accepted it. Maybe it's been a while since you've accepted. Say yes to the invitation. Come to the party. If your heart is to have the kingdom above all things, Luke 12, 32 says this. It's going to come true. 
It is your Father's good will, it says. It's His good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God wants to give it to you. He doesn't want to keep it from you. He wants to give you His presence more fully in your life. He wants you to come near to Him. He wants to say, you're getting hotter. You're getting hotter. Keep coming. Keep coming closer. He wants to, that's His pleasure. That's what He wants. He's not trying to hide it from you. So no more lame excuses. Believe God when He tells you there's nothing more valuable. Step into His presence. Accept the invitation. Now, in this life, and the invitation for everlasting life in the presence of God. Let's pray. God, we thank You that that you keep inviting us, that you don't give up on us, that you want your house to be full. Maybe that's the most amazing promise of this parable. There's still more room, the servant says. And you say, go back out. Invite more people. Bring them in. I want my house to be full. I want my table and my food to be eaten. I want as many people as possible to come into my presence and experience the goodness of me. God, don't give up on us when we make lame excuses. Keep after us. Keep reminding us. And help us to have the courage to step towards you in faith. To trust in you. To trust in your promises. Today, tomorrow, and every day after. In Jesus' name, amen.